Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, May 15th, and this is the weekly market update. Of course, the obligatory disclaimer, this is not investment advice. Anything that you see or hear here is for informational purposes only. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, and this reality check this week, uh, this chart we're looking at here is the ISM manufacturing report on business prices. So this is basically the prices paid by businesses for the materials and, and, and things of that nature. You will note here that uh, the most recent um, reading is not at an all-time high, but it's pushing up against highs that we haven't seen for many, many years. In fact, uh, this is close to the 2008 high. And if you recall in 2008, it was the last time that we had a big uh, inflationary boom where oil prices were up around $140 a barrel, a housing bubble, all that type of situation. Um, and then the last time before that, where we had similar type highs, was back in the late 70s when we had the inflationary episodes uh, that many of you probably don't even recall or weren't even born then. But what I'm trying to tell you is, is that prices, we're seeing this news reports all over the place now. It's not even, you know, hit, hit and miss. It's everywhere. Um, the data is showing it that, you know, because of the supply constraints, because of the shutdowns around the world, and now everything's opening up and then you're throwing all this liquidity everywhere in the world. Every government's central bank just about is throwing liquidity at their markets. You have these huge um, responses and businesses open up. Now they can't get the materials they need and to do business. And, you know, that's part of the discussion, which we'll get into is, is this just something that's transitory? We're seeing prices go up. And I'm starting to get more and more leaning towards the fact that they're not transitory. And we'll get into that. But this is, uh, this is extraordinary. I don't know how much higher this is going to go. We'll have to watch it. Um, one of the things that I'm going to get into later on is energy prices. Um, and I don't think that we've seen the highs on those yet either, which is going to contribute to this because, as I've said before, energy is embedded in everything that we do, everything that we move, how we move, agriculture, what have you, and energy prices or the supply of energy and energy costs will get passed through. Um, this is inflationary. So I'm trying to get out of the mode of predicting. I'm just trying to observe what's going on and report what's going on. Uh, I think getting this inflation or deflation story or theme correct is going to be the determining factor as to whether or not you build wealth over the next decade. What do I mean by that? If you are of the view, like a Lacey Hunt, for example, who's been right on deflation for 30 years, I mean, the guy basically just invests in long-term bonds. He, he's of the view that this is a short episode of supply driven price increases that will dissipate that the overall trend of government debt and demographics will provide a wet blanket deflationary blanket on economies and that uh, this inflationary reflationary 
impulse, if you will, will dissipate and we will see a return to deflation. And therefore he could see the 30 year bond getting down to 1% or lower. I don't know, we'll see. Um, on the other side, inflation. I mean, if you, if you don't get this right, if you subscribe to there's gonna be deflation and that means, well, bond prices will go up, interest rates will go down. That means the equity rally would continue. Um, you'll do well. If you are on the inflation side, um, obviously you're selling bonds and selling growth stocks and moving into commodity and resources. Um, I'm going to get into some of the supply constraints because I believe that this commodity bull market that we're getting ready, that we're in right now is not necessarily demand driven as much as it is supply constrained. And the supply constraints are not transitory in my view. They are long-term structurally embedded uh, issues. So you have to get this right. Um, and here's uh, Ben Hunt. He's from Epsilon Theory. I follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's talking about wage growth. This is something I wasn't even aware of. I mean, yes, we were seeing little reports here and there, but this is something I wasn't aware of. And I don't think the overall market has caught on to yet. Here's the quote. You have to go back 40 years to Q3 1981 to find a higher quarterly year over year wage growth number plus eight and a half percent. This is not an anomaly. This is not a single quarter aberration. This is not transitory. This is four straight quarters of the highest wage growth numbers in 40 years. So the, it, the, the issue that a lot of the deflationists will, tell, will say is that, well, you can't have sustained inflation without wage growth. And you know that may or may not be right, but now we're seeing this wage growth. The thing that I would point out to you is, the listener, is that you have to watch what the policymakers are saying also. I mean, they should already be raising rates. I'm going to get into that. Stan Druckenmiller had some comments around that. They should already be raising rates. This is getting too wild. Um, but they want to see wage go up. They want to see the percentage of the economy that goes to capital decrease and the percentage that goes to labor increase. So they're fine with, with this. Now, they're not smart enough or they don't have the, they're, they're, they're not thinking through the fact that if you have wage growth, that's great for workers. But the problem is if prices are going up as just as fast or faster, then the wage earner is losing purchasing power. So I'm not going to get into the debate of whether the policies are correct. Like I said, I'm not going to predict. I'm just going to observe what's happening and then take positions that I think that are going to benefit me personally. I'm not a policymaker. I have my views on some of the policies. I give them here and there but it's immaterial to what's really happening. It doesn't matter what I want to happen. It only matters what's going to happen. That's where a big mistake a lot of you guys make, a lot of people make, uh, and I've pointed that out many times. It doesn't matter what your personal political persuasions are. It only matters what the facts are and then how you trade those facts or how you invest concerning those facts. You can go out and put a, put a piece of cardboard on a stick and protest. That's fine. That's great. You should do, you know, you, you have the ability to do that here. That has nothing to do with making money. Reality is what it is, not what we want it to be. So I think another thing that he said here is, you know, going back to the subprime, you know, watch the movie, The Big Short, you know, that was talking about the subprime crisis and how it was traded. And I remember back then, and a lot of you younger guys don't remember this. Uh, you're, I know the demographics of this show. A lot of people are in their early 20s. But you should watch that, that picture, that movie, because it kind of explains 
It was a bubblicious episode, kind of similar to what we're seeing now, but it was in subprime. And one of the things that the policymakers said when this thing started unraveling uh, was that uh, subprime is contained. That was the mantra on Wall Street. Uh, there's never been a period in the history of the United States where housing prices have decreased. Housing is the bedrock of the middle class, blah, 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 quack, quack, quack. And it ended up being, you know, once the reality set in that we were going to have a bust, that we were going to have a decrease in housing prices, that we were going to have a massive financial crisis and, and almost a depression, a lot of people's lives turned upside down. Then when it was finally acknowledged and perception turned into reality, uh, the markets corrected. Let's put it that way. So what, what Ben Hunt's saying is that inflation is transitory. That's the new subprime is contained. That's, you know, everybody, everybody seems to think that inflation is transitory. That's what the policymakers are saying. They were saying the same thing about subprime, but they had no clue what was going on. And I mean, a few, few people did, but uh, not many. And this is possibly, you know, in Ben Hunt's view, this is something similar. And when the perception turns into reality that inflation is is may not be transitory, then the markets will adjust and they will adjust violently. Uh, another thing I wanted to add to this about the wages, I found an article, all articles will have links in the show notes as usual. But, uh, you know, fast food restaurants now are having to offer higher wages to attract employees. You know, this is a, this is a symptom of government, right? You know, paying people to sit, sit at home with extended unemployment benefits and then coming on and saying that, you know, like Yellen and the president saying that, you know, this has no effect having extended unemployment benefits and all these programs where people, you know, don't have to work and can still survive adequately. Yes. If you, you know, incentives matter. Charlie Munger has said this many times. I, I say it all the time too. Show me the incentive and I will tell you the outcome. If you pay people not to work, they don't want to work. So these people that are running these businesses have to raise wages to attract people and they still don't want to come work. And once you start raising wages, I mean, it's not like three months later, if it's transitory and everybody comes back to work after unemployment benefits, then all of a sudden you say, well, guys, I was paying you $15 an hour to flip burgers. Now I'm taking you back down to nine, you know, eight fifty or nine fifty, whatever the minimum wage is. I mean, that's not how it works. Battling to hire employees in a tight labor, tight job market, McDonald's on Thursday joined a growing list of fast food and restaurant companies that are lifting hourly wages in the hopes of attracting job seekers. I mean, there's reports out there that many restaurants, I'm not even talking about fast food, I'm talking about regular restaurants, sit down places, family owned restaurants and such. I mean, they can only be open a couple times a week, three or four times. I mean, you see anecdotal reports of this because they do not have enough people to staff the place, you know, five, six, seven days a week. And I can tell you, I don't know, this is just anecdotal. I mean, in my particular uh, place of work that I, in my real life job, I mean, we have to hire all kinds of people and we cannot find qualified people. We have, we have short staffed and it's increasingly difficult to find people to do what we need to do. We have to hire a lot of people and we cannot find them. It's a problem. 
So in order to get people to get off the couch or get people to come in, you're going to have to raise wages. And once somebody gets a higher wage, they're not going to want to accept a pay cut. So here's Stan Druckenmiller's comments. He wrote a piece, I think, in the Wall Street Journal last week. He was also interviewed on CNBC. Um, I'll put a link to the article and to the interview. You can watch it. Um, I mean, I'm not saying this guy's right all the time. He's been wrong like everybody else. He's a human being. But he, you know, this guy was has been a very successful trader. And I think this was really aimed at the policymakers to kind of try to hopefully wake them up to what's going on, because um, this is some very interesting comments. So my issue here is in the future, as we go forward, if we look at federal spending as a percent of GDP, the CBO, which is a Congressional Budget Office, is saying if the 10-year Treasury goes to 4.9%, which is their normalized projection, the interest expense alone, he's talking about interest expense on the debt, will be close to 30% of GDP every year. That's basically what we just spent on the COVID emergency in the last year. There is no way we can afford to have 30% of all government outlays be toward interest expense. So what will happen is that the Fed will have to monetize that. What does that mean? They'll just have to print money and buy the debt. They'll have to and monetize it. When they monetize it, I believe it will have horrible implications for the dollar. Absolutely. Once the market understands and realizes what happens, if this in fact does happen, you, people are not going to want to hold dollars because it cannot be stopped then. Once this cycle starts, and I've already said this back in a video I made like maybe two years ago or a year and a half ago, Trump being the first MMT president, we have crossed the Rubicon, folks. This is going to happen. Okay, there will be no debt reductions. There will be no spending cuts. They're talking about spending more money. We're not even, we got two big more bills coming down the road. The infrastructure bill, the Green New Deal bill, and you know the Recovery Act bill. The, 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 these are supposed to be in the trillions of dollars. Okay, it's not going to stop. There are only two ways out of this for the U.S. to let the U.S. dollar weaken meaningfully or to put the U.S. economy into a recession to reattract global capital flows into the U.S. Treasury market. The problem is, is that you can't afford to do that. The debts are too big. If you actually raised rates right now, which is what they should be doing, in my view, the Federal Reserve should be raising rates. The debts are so large uh, in corporations and in the U.S. governments, state governments, I mean, you, you have a deflationary depression and it would be very difficult to get out of and you would have a lot of social and political unrest. So that's why they're going to keep printing money. That's why they're going to keep inflating. And that's why they're going to keep jaw boning. Okay. They have no choice. We've crossed Rubicon a long time ago. Um, this is me. It's going to happen in the next three to six months. I've said this before. These things build and build and build. And all of a sudden it happens over, you know, a week, the crisis. Uh, so I don't know just because something certain doesn't mean it's imminent, but I can tell you that as more and more people wake up to what's happening, uh, money flows will shift. People will say, why, why would you want to hold us government debt? That's crazy. I mean, real interest rates are negative and going more negative if the, you know, just because the, the government's not reporting inflation properly or price rises properly doesn't mean that, you know, people aren't recognizing what's going on and people are going to get out of this. So you're, this is not, this is a problem going forward. So, you know, I just wanted to help. 
um, gold and silver miners. You know, they've been in a correction since last August. I think this last week, the price action in gold was very positive. Depending on what kind of chart you want to look at, I don't want to get into too much technical analysis. You know, gold really has rallied. It's uh, above $1,800 an ounce again. A lot of the gold stocks were rallying. And, you know, you, we may have broken the downtrend. We'll have to see what happens over the next couple of weeks if the follow through is there. But what I will say is that even with the gold prices that we have currently, we're seeing record cash flows at, uh, at these gold producers. They have been very, very restrained in their behavior, which is contrary to what they normally do, which is they get money, they start, it burns a hole in their pocket. What are they doing? They are being rational. They're returning money to shareholders. They are seeing, uh, they, are, they are not going out and doing all kinds of wild M&A activity. So, you know, we are seeing some consolidation, but it's not crazy like it has been in the past. So uh, if we get a higher gold price, then, you know, these, these things are going to uh, look more attractive on screens. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, gold has to catch up quite a bit. I didn't put up the chart this week, but there's a pretty good chart showing the, the difference between real rates and the gold price. So, you know, gold goes through these big consolidations during bull markets. It's not a month or two. Sometimes it can be a year consolidating. We've been consolidating since last August. We're coming up on a year and it looks like, you know, the fundamentals now are, are overcoming the, uh, you know, the selling pressure, if you will. So this has been one of the only commodities that really hasn't reacted. Uh, you know, it had its big run last August, over $2,000 an ounce. And it's very possible, I think, that um, we're going to resume the uptrend. Okay, a little bit more on uranium. Um, I had this slide. I just wanted to put it up here. You know, this is uh, CGN, which is uh, China. Uh, it's a big um, power producer in China. Uh, it is a big state-owned enterprise, obviously. I want to focus on the forecast of China's installed nuclear capacity. Now, here's 50, as, as of last year, 51 gigawatts. You know, we've talked about this before, but I like these visualizations. In 2025, which is four years from now, you're basically want to, they want to go to 70 gigawatts. That's, you know, basically a 50% rise in capacity. And by 2030, which is only nine years, um, they want to go over 100%. They want to go to 120 gig, gigs. And um, the question I have, is, and they're doing it. I mean, we, we've seen in the five-year plan, they're going to raise the amount of reactors that they're going to be building from five to eight a year, something like that. Um, they've really fully recovered from the Fukushima. They've got everything lined out. They have their designs, they're streamlined, and uh, they get it, right? They have to... Um, they they have to do this in order to get the pollution under control, not necessarily CO2. They could care less about the Paris climate. They don't care about CO2 in China in the developing world. They do not care. They do have an issue with particulate matter and smog and things like that. They do have to take care of that. And nuclear, they know full well, will be um, the what they uh, are doing. I mean, Th this is interesting because, again, there's no new mines being developed. We are looking at a, at a market that's in liquidation, the uranium market. So, you know, we've talked about the Sprott situation with the new um, 
fund that they're creating, they're going to uh, convert uranium participation. I mean, it's been like, this is probably like the fourth or fifth week that I've been reporting on some kind of positive uranium news. So the uranium stocks have moved quite a bit. Uh, they're trading, you know, probably extendedly. But if you do not have a position, you should start layering in positions. You should start getting involved in these stocks. I've said this, this has been one of my original, since this channel started maybe two or three years ago, wherever long it's been, I've been talking about uranium. And it's finally, the thesis is now turning into reality. You know, here's some more good news. White House supports subsidies for nuclear. It's a Reuters article. Quote, the White House has signaled privately to lawmakers and stakeholders in recent weeks that it supports taxpayer subsidies to keep nuclear facilities from closing and making it harder to meet U.S. climate goals, three sources familiar with the discussions. New subsidies in the form of production tax credits would likely be swept into President Joe Biden's multi-trillion dollar legislative effort to invest in infrastructure and jobs. Wind and solar power producers already get these tax rebates based on levels of energy they generate. Quote, there's a deepening understanding within the administration that it needs nuclear to meet its zero emission goals. So, you know, again, with the tax credits and the government creates these issues with, uh, you know, we don't have a completely free market where these technologies would compete on a level. I mean, it's just how it is. I mean, the government's involved. So they give the incentives to solar and wind. That's really not lowering carbon emissions like they thought. They need to preserve these nuclear plants. They cannot, I mean, they just shut one down in New York. Um, and, you know, they can't, we can't afford to do that if we want to meet these goals that have been set out that the majority of people in this country seem to want. For us, it's good because, uh, you know, that was one of the kind of bare theses as well over time. You know, the environmental movement uh, is going to slowly whittle down the amount of plants, but we're not seeing that, right? If this goes through, which it probably will, um, you know, you're going to see tax credits available. You're going to see, you're already seeing uh, li operating licenses being extended. So everything is still positive there. That's what I'm trying to tell you. This is positive news. You know, I will give credit to the administration when they do something good. I'm not for subsidies, but it is what it is. Okay, copper prices. I mean, copper prices are making new highs all the time. What's really going on here? So um, stock levels now of copper are now com are comparable to those seen 15 years ago and cover le less than a month's demand for copper. Uh, this is a Bank of America note. Quote, of course, this fundamental backdrop is so concerning because the global economy is just now starting to open up and reflate. Linked to that, we forecast copper market deficits and further inventory declines this year and next. Bank of America researchers wrote. Yeah, we've been talking about that, right? I mean, this is what I've been talking about. Um, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be a big demand issue. There's demand and supply, but the supply is really constrained. And I'm going to show another on another slide just how constrained supply is going forward. Now, the situation is, is that copper demand, you know, if we're going to have this build out of renewable energy and electric cars and all stuff, it's very, very copper intensive. Okay, I don't have time to get into all of the, you know, all these charging stations they want to build, all the cars, they require four to five times the amount of copper than an internal combustion engine. I mean, you can go on, you can do spreadsheet exercises forecasting this. The other thing to note is, 
if you read the Gorn and Rosenswag Q1 2021 report, which I will put a link to, and I will be referencing in another slide, uh, you know, you have these emerging markets, developing markets, i.e. the major ones, China and India, that are entering their S-curves as far as where you get to as a middle income economy in your copper intensity that's required for you to achieve higher levels of GDP. And it's tremendous. I mean, we haven't seen, the problem is, is that the demands on the amount of copper uh, production are going to exceed the ability of the market to supply the copper. The large majority of your copper comes from Chile and places like Peru. There's not been investment. The mines are 30, 40 years old. Um, their, their grades are going down. The amount of ore is, uh, that, that you can get per ton is going down. And GNR talks about that in their Q1 uh, commentary. They talk about um, head grade. They talk about the ability to increase resources. There's no like new mines being found. So what people are doing is the price goes up for copper. What's happening is, is uneconomical ore now becomes economical, but there's a limit to that also. And that's been about 80% of the reserve growth over like the last 10 or 15 years, not finding new, new greenfield mines. That's a problem. And I will point out, you know, people, uh, GNR, they do tremendous work. If you're not reading them, you're really missing out. They really hit the shale thing right on the head. They an analyzed that. They used a lot of artificial intelligence, data gathering, and did analysis. They hit that on the head. They're really, really good research to read. Are they right all the time? Not necessarily, but uh, it's probably the best research I've ever seen when it comes to the resource markets. So what do they say? Quote, the fundamentals today are even more bullish. They're talking about the la more bullish than the last rally that we had in copper that took it from about a buck 50 up to, or from 50 cents up to like 450 during the last rally back in 2007 or eight. We would not be surprised to see copper prices again advance a minimum of sevenfold before this bull market is over. Using a $1.95 as our starting point, we expect copper prices to potentially peak near $15 per pound by the later part of this decade. Our model strongly suggests copper mine supply growth will grind to a halt this decade. The number of new world-class discoveries coming online will decline substantially and depletion problems at existing mines will accelerate. Also, geological constraints surrounding copper porphyry deposits, a subject few analysts and investors understand, will contribute to the problems. Quote, stagnating copper mine supply already colliding with strong demand will push copper prices far higher than anyone expects. So, you know, we have a pretty, we have a copper producer in the uh, portfolio. Uh, it's doing very well. It does not mine copper. It processes tailings from a major mines in Chile. And uh, as the copper price goes up, I mean, it's a fixed cost business. So every, you know, cent, 10 cents, 20 cents, whatever, above their fixed cost price, it goes to the bottom line. Now, there's some troubling things happening in Chile and, and in Peru. I mean, you have in Peru a presidential election where you have basically a Marxist that uh, is currently leading slightly in the polls. Um, he wants to, you know, have all of the resources benefit the people. That certainly won't be a... Uh, conducive to investment in new copper mines. And in Chile, you're seeing something similar. You're seeing legislation where the country wants to raise the royalty rates, and that already passed the lower house and is going to the Senate. 
So I don't predict what's going to happen. I don't know enough about these politics, but I would tell you that those type of legislation, those type of people in power are not going to be conducive to investing billions of dollars in new copper producing assets in those countries. And they're some of the major copper producers in the world. So this chart uh, got off Twitter. This kind of sums it up, right? These are the copper discoveries. And I put in here, what discoveries? Look, this is the number of discoveries per year of major mines. And since 2015, we've only had one major mine found. Um, so I don't know, this is a lack of exploration. I mean, what part of the earth hasn't been explored yet? What part of the, what, 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 what large ore bodies aren't known? Uh, I'm sure that there's still some out there to be found, but the investment's not certainly not happening to find them where, so you're basically again, living off the investment made years ago. So you have an industry that's slowly getting into liquidation again, something similar you saw in uranium. So if you have, like I said, this electrification move, if you have these countries that are developing, entering their middle-class S-curves where the amount of copper needed to go to the next level of industrialization and GDP per capita GDP levels, it takes a tremendous amount of copper, installed copper base because of electricity. So the idea that you're going to electrify the whole world, it's going to be some kind of easy, it's going to, I mean, this is setting up perfectly. Okay. And so, you know, yes, there's going to be more scrapping. I mean, we've seen China already this, this week made some announcements, you know, iron ore prices are through the roof copper. They're going to slow down. They're trying to manage, you know, but in the end, if you're going to try to grow your economy, you got to have this stuff. It's that simple. So, you know, I don't know where the stuff's coming from. It's evident the, that, that the necessary investments haven't been made. So that sounds like it's going to be a tremendous cycle of investment in trying to find new supply. That's an opportunity. Just wanted to touch on this. Uh, don't sell your oil stocks yet. Uh, this is oil seasonality. You can see that we're right you know, in this area here. Uh, we should see uh, oil prices move higher through. This is like every year averaged. You know, why, you know, we have Memorial Day coming up and that's the beginning of the summer driving season. Things are opening up. You're seeing mask mandates dropping all over the place now. Um, you're seeing, you know, if you look at the uh, amount of COVID cases, people, de uh, COVID deaths, everything's dropping massively. It, you know, this economy is going to open up. Uh, people are going to go on vacation. I'm not sure, but I mean, you're already seeing packed planes again. It's it's happening just like we thought. Another area where we may have underestimated the amount of oil demand that's coming down the pipeline. So we'll see. Uh, again, we're observing. I, I, I'm still sticking to my WTI at $70 a barrel. It looks like that's going to be achieved. I mean, we're already in the mid-60s on WTI. Brent was uh, kissing, trying to kiss 70 this week, but we haven't even got into the main uh, travel season yet. And with all of the pent up demand that I'm, uh, assuming is out there, uh, people are going to go on trips are going to be driving and gasoline, uh, demand, jet fuel demand should, uh, be recovering nicely. You will note if you, uh, follow Eric Nuttall, he's been posting the, um, inventory data week to week. And we are basically pretty much back to five-year averages on inventory. 
And now once the market sees that that's continues to decline, uh, you know, as more of the world opens up, I mean, people are talking about India. Yeah. India had a big problem with COVID. They had a big, but if you look at Worldometer, the amount of cases are rolling over already. So as the year goes on, as we go through the year, you know, you're going to see things start turning around more and more on this COVID deal, in my view. And uh, the policymakers are going to be very, very um, quick to want to get their economies moving again. Here's a tweet from Karen Braun. I follow her. She's big on the agricultural sector. Um, USA exports a record 9.47 million tons of corn in March 2021, dwarfing the old record for any month set in May 2018. Record volume to China. Record volume to non-China. What's going on? We have $7 corn. What's going on in the world? Um, why we, do we have all of this corn demand? Um, we know why in China. I'm telling you, the climate is in fact shifting. It's not you know, whether you want to be, it's warming or cooling, growing season, something, something screwy is going on. We've had an abundance of very, very good growing seasons for a decade or more. And I believe that's going to shift just, you know, it has to, it, nothing stays perfect forever. And whether you think it's going to be attributable to CO2 or warming or cooling or whatever, I, I think that we're going to have some struggles with some of the growing seasons going forward. And uh, we're going to see sustained ag prices. Uh, fertilizer stocks look good in this type of environment. Uh, oil benefits from this, right? Because oil's an input into everything. Energy's an input. So there's different ways to play this. So I think that agriculture, like other commodities, has been underinvested in. And uh, if you pile on top of it in increasing populations, more protein in diets, less arable land per capita, I mean, you can go on and on here. We're finally hitting that sweet spot where we're seeing sustained agricultural prices and uh, we're seeing record volumes here. So this is, uh, you know, and, you know, $7 corn, that means a lot of for farmers in Iowa and Illinois are planting a lot of corn and they are putting the inputs in, I can guarantee you, to get the yields up. So uh, expect some great results from the fertilizer suppliers. Do I have a fertilizer supplier in the uh, Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter? No, I do not. I'll probably be adding one soon. But uh, there's not that many out there. So you could create your own ETF and buy a basket. So, I mean, that's shouldn't be hard to figure out which companies to buy. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. A lot of great information, a lot of things to think about. Um, you got to get this inflation deflationary thing correct. You got to be nimble. You got to stay on top of it. I'm willing to change my mind on things when, if the facts change. But right now, um, we're seeing some, uh, I'm not sure how transitory this inflation really is. So uh, something to think about, something to contemplate. You have to get this right. That's it for this week, guys. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.